the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Hello and welcome to the Forward Together podcast. I'm Jared Dean and I'm joined as always by Paul Gosling. Hi Gerard. So Paul, this is a slightly different, we're doing uh, three new podcast episodes that are different from the ones that have gone before where we've been looking at four main themes with um, political and community representatives. Tell us a wee bit about the three that are coming up over the next while. Okay, we thought it'd be interesting to have a period of reflection as we move towards the end of the series of Forward Together podcasts uh, where we we interview uh, writers who have explored the past Mm -hmm. and to ask them how this has affected them, how it has affected the people they've interviewed and what can we learn from their experience of talking to people about the past in terms of how we rebuild for the future. Okay. And the first one of those is uh, Julianne Campbell, who edited the Unheard Voices collection of women's stories from the Troubles. Now, she, uh, I, I, it's important to point out, she is also employed by the Free Museum of Derry, which is very closely associated with the campaign for uh, supporting uh, victims' families around Bloody Sunday. But I think it's also important to stress that what we hear from Julianne applies to people from any background. Mm. It's not a reflection of the thinking of one community. It's about how we learn from any background within that Northern Ireland society yeah. about how we deal with the past. And that's one of the things that she talks about. It, and it's the first thing I think that she stresses is the commonality of experience here of the conflict. And what touched me very much was how Julianne talked about how this affected her personally that coming from her background it gave her empathy towards people from other backgrounds other communities including from the security forces that other experiences never gave her that empathy and wouldn't have given her and I think that is very important for us to understand the phrase I think she used was that uh, those are are not experiences that she would have traditionally have you know emphasised with Aye. you know okay, but she talks about the importance of the woman the of of a woman's role in the conflict and holding society together and and that ref- reflected in the title as well unheard voices because the whole point is that we you know it is his story you know the troubles is yeah. mostly about the hymns not the hers and. It was the women, for the most part, that kept the families together, that kept the societies operating, uh, that uh, in, in many families were the people that brought up the kids when the men weren't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Some had died, some were in prison. Uh, and, uh, and that's not just, again, about one community. That was from all different experiences, people who worked in security forces, people who were Republican or loyalist activists, or people who were, you know, otherwise, otherwise victims from what happened in the past and what we don't hear usually is the story the stories of women mm. and that's what julianne has has brought through in in the collection which i would actually very strongly recommend people to, to read as well okay well let's hear the conversation that you had with julianne now. i'm talking now with uh, julianne campbell who edited the unheard voices a collection of women's stories from the troubles uh julianne thank you very much indeed for doing this um Head straight into this. On a personal level, how has your research affected you? 
I think it has affected me on several levels, um, emotionally and um, and, and my work. It has affected. It has made me more sensitive. It has made me more empathetic towards people I meet, and it has made me less judgmental. And um, I think it has opened my eyes to the hurt that is still here that I would never have seen if I hadn't indulged in this kind of work. So it was it was a real eye opener for me personally. It's a very interesting word, judgmental. I mean, in what sense has it made you less judgmental? Um, for instance, I think some of the strongest work that I've done in recent years was with the security forces, and I would have naturally, being from my community, I would have sort of been afraid to speak to those people, but they were actually some of the most powerful interviews I've ever done, and it was really, really interesting to hear that point of view because it was something that I had never, ever been privy to before. And in what ways did that give you a different perspective? Because it just showed you that the hurt and the fear was universal. And that was very important. You know, even the the reserve police officers on the streets, they had the same fear as the people on the streets. And that was, um, that's important to know that all these years later. Because that's a very important point, isn't it, about the universality of mm. the experience? Because in a sense, because of the way our society here mm. is broken up, there's a sense of this is what happened to us mm. without recognising that's what happened to people in various different communities mm. as well. That's what happened across the board, really, and in different ways to each community. But um, across the board, uh, there's a feeling of a shared anguish and a shared pain. And that shared feeling that you were afraid to go to bed at night because you didn't know what was going to happen. And that was victims and that was perpetrators and that was security forces. Everyone had that same sense of dread and uneasiness. And I think that comes across very prevalent in the work that I've done. And, of course, the work that you did was very specific around women's experiences. Yes. And probably the majority of the women that you would have spoken to would not have been personally combatants in mm. any way. Mm. So, and, but the, to a large extent, they were the, the, the recipients of the trauma. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were the backbone of society, we always say, but nobody ever asks women for their voice. So that's why this Unheard Voices project was a challenge. And when you sat down with these women... Um, most of them said, oh, I haven't, I haven't anything to tell you. And then they would start speaking and you could hear a pin drop. And often we just abandoned the questions to just listen because that's what was necessary at that moment in time was someone to just listen. And that became very obvious that no one had ever asked before. And that's something we need to address. You know, if there's all these untold stories out there, who's asking and who's listening? And I think that would go a long way to healing and moving on. You know, just that basic human want to be heard and acknowledged. Because that is one of the things, isn't it, that I've heard many times that people say, well, I've never been able to, no one's wanted to listen, Mm. I've never been able to say this before. Mm. And I think that that comes across very strongly. And in my other work since, um, it is a recurrent trait that people think no one wants to know what happened to them. When you say your other work, you mean at the Museum of Free I mean in the Museum of Free Dairy work and other oral history work that I've done. Um, I've also worked with... um, uh, bloody Sunday families and other victims and have organised the In Their Footsteps campaign, you know, the shoes campaign mm. for bereaved families across the spectrum as well, you know all, it was open to everyone, that was the point of it was to try and make it inclusive but again, it's a chance for people to come together share their feelings, share their thoughts and actually have that sense of shared acknowledgement mm. and that someone else is listening so uh, that comes across throughout and, and I'm on the board of the Pat Finucane Centre again that comes across through many of their cases is that families need heard mm. so I think that could be a very very important thing if we could harness that and use it you know 
Isn't it also important that we, we learn those stories before people die? Yes. Because they're lost. Yes. And in a sense, that we, we, there's so much that we need to learn mm. from the experience of individuals in the Troubles that there's a real risk that we're going to lose it because people die. And if we don't learn from the past, we're condemned to relive it. I do agree. I do agree. And I agree it's a, it's a, a timely venture, especially now when people are of a certain age, especially all our civil rights leaders. I've spent the last two years trying to... Um, get some of those guys to talk while we still have them and thank God we have done that and I got Bishop Daly's last ever interview about his experiences being parish priest in the bog side and things and again these were vital voices that could be lost and the community voices are even more important than the well known voices is it the the average Joe on the street you know what happened to them and so a lot of the a lot of the work that needs to be done is going under the communities uh, not just projects outside communities I think you need to get your hands dirty and get in there and you know see what else needs done in communities and because of the nature of the troubles mm. a lot of what happened won't have been you know seen witnessed by, by the people who write history mm. it would be by the people who don't normally have any access to writing history it would and that comes across in a lot of my work as well is that um we didn't really have a voice here, and I wasn't really aware of that because I was born in 1976. So I'm, I'm, I don't have that early frame of reference that everyone else has. But no one asked, and no one had a voice here, and that's why it's important to have these peace-building projects, and they have community resources like the Museum Oral History Project, and they try and um, let people talk and give them the opportunity to talk now while we have them. Uh, I wish we could hurry up on that and I wish there was more people than just a pocket of us talking about it. And there was a talk of an oral history initiative as part of the Stormont House Agreement. Again, it's lying dormant and by the time they get it going, everybody that they want to hear from will be dead or too infirm to speak anymore. So there is, there should be a push push on these kind of things because it, it's now we need it, not five years, not ten years. Um, and what are your learnings from the voices that you listen to? The people here are so strong and inspiring and um, again it goes back to that not judging thing uh, if you see someone on the street and it just looks like a wee grandmother you don't know her story and it has opened my eyes to you never know the stories behind people and that sets me in great stead for the rest of my life because you won't just think oh that's some wee granny that's some wee granny that could have changed history on her day you know to what extent are people unwilling to talk about things? Because that's quite interesting. My, my grandfather fought in the First World War and never, ever, ever spoke about it. Mm. And that is a common experience of people who fought in the First World War. Mm. I mean, to what extent have you found that people are unwilling to talk about their experiences in the Troubles? Some people are unwilling. My daddy was present on Bloody Sunday and he's not with us anymore now. But I wish I had asked him because he never spoke about any of it. And he never gave evidence at the inquiry. Whatever he saw was so horrific, he never revisited it again. And now, in the line of work that I'm in now, I would love to go back and sit him down and say, right, what was it? Tell me all about it. But all I know is that he was hiding in Joseph Place. But it must have been something for him not to have been part of the inquiry and not to even have a voice as part of that because it really, really affected him. So, yes, that's just one example from my own house. 
Yeah, there's so many people out there that are afraid to maybe speak because it might re-traumatise them. Exactly, because in a sense, the not talking about is a symptom of the trauma they experience, isn't it? Well, I think um, the trauma is there either way. If you stay quiet, it's an internal trauma. And if you share it, then it it almost feels like you're sharing the burden. And that has to help in the long run. And, uh, I mean, I've, I've seen some of the women that you've interviewed speak, and they seem to have been released by the experience mm. talking with you. I mean, is that your perception? I think so, yes. And I think it has been life-changing for a few of them that just uh, had never dealt with what happened to them in the past. And even having one person listening to them, well, two in the case of this project, because it was me and Carol Cunningham, but that acknowledgement and that it was a few hours out of our life, but it changed someone else's life. You know, it's not to be snuffed at. That's a significant achievement in their lives that they were able to speak and be heard and feel that they can start... Watch the word. I can't say move on because he can't move on, but start to deal with what was in their head. So clearly, I mean, some people feel re-traumatised, but you're talking about a, a number of women that feel a, a sense of being able to deal with yeah. things that they release, had trapped previously. Yeah. I would say a catharsis. It's always a word I use. There was, there was a catharsis involved in it, and I would find that with a lot of storytelling work is that people get a lot out of just speaking and recounting their own experiences. And again, it goes back to that, oh, I don't have much to say. And then they start speaking, and it's unbelievably historically important stuff. So um, while it's traumatising, we also have, um, especially in the unheard voices, we had um, trauma support in place and counselling services and things like that, just in case we didn't want to reopen raw wounds and then leave these people to it. You know, that was part of the deal was, if you need help, we will help you. How did you choose the counsellors? Um, they were chosen from a few different organisations. But presumably they're professional yeah, counsellors. Yeah, but it was fast-tracked, so you didn't have to wait six weeks. So if we had reopened some woman's awful awful secrets from the 60s or 70s that she'd never spoken about, and that woman needed to speak to someone that day, then we could organise that. And that was very, very important, that you weren't sending her home. With, and that did happen, did yeah, it? Yeah, it did happen, yeah. yeah. Mm. And I think that's important. You know, you can't just expect people to speak, tell their life stories and send them on their merry way that doesn't happen like that it's a very serious significant thing that you're asking and you have to have everything else in place to make that happen and make it happen properly so some of the learnings then from the experience are you've learned about the character of the people who live through these Mm. things you've learned about the need or the benefit of people talking about their experiences providing this counseling support what do you think you've learned in terms of how Northern Ireland moves forward? Um, I think unless we start listening, we're not really going to move forward. And there's a lot of talk out there, but there's not a lot of, not a lot of listening. There never is. And everything's always up in the air, and it's always someone else's problem. But until we actually sit down and get together and start actually communicating, we're never really going to get far. But I do think that giving communities a voice is one way. You have to go back and offer them that voice in order to move forward and have them embrace the future. 
and I do believe that even in terms of my own family to do with Bloody Sunday you know you have to let them revisit what has happened and come to terms with it before they can positively face the future I mean that's again another very interesting point which other people have raised with me about the fact that there are secrets within families Mm. not necessarily bad secrets but they are secrets about the experience and it can be very important Mm. to talk about things that other family members perhaps that are younger Mm. can learn about the past and learn about what's happened to their family Mm. well I think I was sort of fortunate in that way that I lived next door to our campaigner and she would have regaled me with her stories over the years so I sort of had a, a bird's eye view of the campaign almost in that respect so although I wasn't born during before Bloody Sunday I was always kept abreast of what was happening and I think in a quiet way that inspired me to maybe follow in their footsteps and help these kind of causes or help social injustices I don't really know how I got into this but I do know it was from listening to my aunt and uncle and their stories and them trying to change the status quo and one of the important questions is whether we need to deal with the past in order to deal with the future. And what's your perception on the basis of what you Most experienced? Most definitely we need to. We can't just brush it under the carpet and that comes up time and time again. Um, there's so many historic cases that have never even had an inquest, let, let alone a police investigation. And these are coming on 45, 50 years ago now. And if it's not addressed now, then we are actually leaving the next generation with a burden and that's not fair on them either. I know I'm that next generation, you know. And it was very, very important to my auntie and uncle that they wouldn't, go, they weren't going to pass that on to me because I was the person interested in the cause in my house. And that hasn't happened, hopefully, in our respect. But it will happen across the line with so many other families because they have left it so long to deal with the past, and they haven't addressed it properly. And it is, it's an open wound that is being passed on. But there's an interesting question here about justice because if you speak to people across the spectrum, mm. they will say one of the objectives they want for their future society is justice. Mm. But then there are very different interpretations about what justice means mm. and what, to what extent it can be achieved and whether actually just telling the stories mm. is in itself a form of justice. I mean, what, what's your perception on that? I think it is a form of justice. Uh, I agree with you that there are many variations to the meanings behind justice. Um, I know that a lot of people think prosecutions in a court of law is the way ahead, but for some others it wouldn't be such such a strong... I think acknowledgement and being heard and having your place in history acknowledged and recognised, that would be a sense of justice. You know, that uh, your story is heard, that it is known, that in my, in my thinking that would be justice also. So... Um, I'm not so sure if I believe in the whole prosecution thing as strongly as I should do, but I do believe there should be a rule of law, there should be a law upheld, and if people have done th- something wrong, no, no matter what side, it should be acknowledged and it should be a fact, even if there isn't a court case hanging over them or a prison sentence, it should be acknowledged. And is there a difference between acknowledgement and apology? Because one of the things that was said to me is the only way we can move forward is if people move beyond acknowledgement Mm. but actually apologise because specifically loyalist communities won't believe that Republicans will never return to to violence Mm. unless they publicly say, we acknowledge the violence was wrong and we apologise for Mm. that and we are committed to a peaceful future. I mean, do you think there's validity in that view? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I think apologies are okay, but unless apologies are followed up by action, then they can be a bit hollow. 
And again, I'm speaking of my own experience in terms of David Cameron's apology. It meant the world to Derry at the time that he mm. apologised for Bloody Sunday. But nine years later, it hasn't followed through to um, what the Public Prosecution Service have ruled on it, that only one soldier out of 17 will be will be investigated for murder, you know. Um, so and I wonder what it, the value is of an apology when it's actually not the people who are involved exactly, that are giving the exactly, apology. Yeah. Does it matter? David Cameron wasn't Ted Heath. Mm. It was Ted Heath that ordered Parachute Regiment in. But the fact that he apologised on behalf of him and his country meant a great deal. And I'm sure you were there that day. You felt the wave of euphoria from Derry. And it was just, we wanted that apology. Doesn't matter what Prime Minister, it just mattered that it was a Prime Minister on behalf of his country. But I think that apology has been weakened in, in, in recent years because of everything that came after it and because of if there was wrongdoing, then the police investigation sought to, to clear that up and now we were better off with just the apology perhaps because now only one soldier is being prosecuted. So it's a fine line really, you know, mm. would, would it have been better to stay with the apology and accept that and move on? or were a right to pursue prosecutions, which was taken out of the family's hands anyway. And that'll be the same across the board for a lot of historic cases. Is apology enough, or do they want to pursue it through the courts? Do you know, it's a, it's a, a, it's a difficult one for families, I would think. I mean, the, the big concern people have about dealing with the past is whether actually it will just inflame tensions and mm. take us backwards instead of forwards. I mean, what's your perspective on that? I think um, secrecy. Secrecy has a lot to do with inflaming tensions, and if we're going to move on at all, then we have to actually, again, look back and see what we need to be, tell the truth about. I'm thinking about um, Sammy Devaney, the only case, the only investigation ever done under the death of Sammy Devaney. The family have never seen it, and he's dead 50 years this year, and the family have never seen the one police investigation, and there's one copy of it with the Metropolitan Police in London, and the Deveneys have still never seen it. Now that... If that was your daddy, you want to see that in order to be able to deal with it and get your head around it and being able to accept what happened. If maybe never ever accept it, but at least be able to deal with it somehow. So um, that's the Drury report, it's called. But that always stuck out in my head, that nobody has ever seen the one report done about their daddy. So I'm sure there's many other instances like that here. So a bit of truth and a bit of accountability wouldn't go amiss from the likes of the governments. It's difficult to see how you can deal with the past unless old state papers are released. Exactly, exactly. And sure, you can see from the work of the Pat Finucane Centre just how valuable that material can be. You know, it can open up entire cases, what's found in Kew Gardens. So unless there is that open book kind of policy from their side, then we are fighting a losing battle, really. Now, in terms specifically of the work you've done and the book that you published, what would you hope people, wider society, could learn from that? Mm, that, um, That there was more to the troubles than just Catholic and Protestant. I thought, in my head, I think that's what I was hoping from the book, and it was so much more than that, because to people outside Ireland, they think, oh, the Catholics are fighting the Protestants, and vice versa. You know, they don't think of the wider context of it, and they don't think of the, the minutiae of it. They just see this Catholics versus Protestant, and the book, to me, made me see that it was so many more facets of a conflict. And they all sort of inter interwove into each other, and it wasn't so set in stone. It wasn't black and white at all. And unless you actually look at it from that objective viewpoint, we're never really going to get past it. 
and and it's often ignored the extent to which there were cross community friendships before mm. the troubles and i believe that there were cross community friendships that emerged from from your research as well mm. well from one of from um, two of the ladies involved in my book one of them had never crossed the the bridge to come over to the city side in 20 years she just thought she would get battered on the city side and that that's what she said i thought it would get my head kicked in and then she made friends with a woman from Cregan who would be a Republican woman. And them two women, are like, they were great friends, brilliant friends, and one of them met the other one at the end of the Peace Bridge. And that was a real healing moment that they both met at the end of the Peace Bridge and came over to the town for some shopping. But in those small acts, that's where the success of that project was, you know, that we changed those two ladies' lives in a small way. You know? And and how can we arrange, how can we organise for more people to learn from those experiences? More projects like that, more 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 um, community-based le- um, projects, you know, not these highfalutin ones from the government, but actually people out there on the streets talking to people that matter. And not so many consultations, but actually getting your hands dirty on the ground. Now, I've, I've done lots of conversations. I've been to lots of meetings in the last few weeks as a result of this project. And the one comment that I heard that has most affected me was from a schoolboy mm. at a meeting organised by WAVE, where he was saying when he was hearing the experiences of individuals who had lost limbs, who had lost their partners as a result of uh, bombs during the Troubles, that if only at school history was taught about the personal rather than the political and that they at school learnt about the the human damage of what happened in the troubles I mean do you think that there's ways that the things like you've been doing can can you know educate people more more Mm. widely Mm. that's a very good point from that young man a very insightful point I think you would be right I haven't thought about it like that before but yes I would agree that you have to bring it back to the human story because statistics are what is left after all this and we are not about statistics, we are about the human story. So I think uh, we need to try and get back to creating a human voice and letting them have their say. And it's about giving out that human story why people are still alive to a wide audience, yep. particularly young people, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was hired to be the press officer for the Bloody Sunday families ahead of the Savile Report, my main remit was to remind the world of the human stories behind the headlines because it had been forgotten over the decades. You know, and to what extent just, have we succeeded with that? Well, we've done features on the wounded and, and how they mm. felt after surviving, that people hadn't heard from them in years. No, we really did. We brought back the human stories behind the headlines because it was just it was so easily, oh, the bloody Sunday families. Mm. But you forgot about each family individually and, and how it absolutely tore their lives apart. And I think we really did get that across a lot before the Savile Report. So, again, if that was carried out across communities, all communities, I think that would be a really, really healing thing. And again, to go back to where we started from, it has to be done in a way where people see the commonality of that experience yep. rather than yep. the individuality yep. of that experience, isn't yep. it? So you're not doing it to divide people. You're doing it to try and create uh, a more united society. Yeah, I would agree so. And uh, I would. it's a shame that some of the security force ladies in this book went anonymous. And there was actually one who didn't. And she said, oh, no, I'll use my name. But we made her anonymous. And that's also significant because we didn't want one standing out among all the others. So that was very sad that she wanted to use her name. But because of the times we live in, we suggest that she go anonymous. 
So that's also sad, so you have to sort of think about that way as well, you know. A lot of this is terribly sad. I it, mean, is, did, it is, How did that affect you personally? I mean, did, it, did you have, have difficulty dealing with that sadness? I did, and I, I would have had a lot of crying in the middle of the night. And um, one time there was a story about a, a woman whose husband was shot dead through her living room window when they were just sitting watching TV and speaking to that woman about that and then writing it out and transcribing it in the house. I had to stop and drink, a, drink wine and watch cartoons in the middle of the night, I remember. And that was one that particularly affected me, that I had to do anything to get those images out of my mind, you know? So, yeah, it became quite difficult sitting intruding on someone else's grief, almost. But in a way, that's a privilege as well, and you have to sort of do their story justice. And we have to not be scared of that. We have to, as a society, be not scared no of feeling that away. hurt yep. because yep. we've got to face up to what's happening. No point shying away from it, you know, because it could be very easy if someone's telling you something that's so significant and so detailed, they um, move on to the next thing. But no, let them speak and let them go into every single detail because even if it's un- uh, uncomfortable for us to hear, my God, they need to say it, you know. Gillian Campbell, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, um, so thanks to Julianne for taking the time to meet with Paul. Um, so Paul, Julianne talks about the importance of stories, but also the fear of stories being lost um, and how we might need to deal with this in, in a really timely manner. That's right, people are getting old, many people are dying. And, and Julianne, again, I mean, I was very appreciative that Julianne would speak in such a personal way about how things have affected her. And she talked about the fact that she very much regretted that her family did not learn more about her father's story before he died. Mm. And I think, that, you know, this this must apply to many, many, many families across the piece that, you know, it's a way of, of, of helping, you know, helping deal with things. And I know from my own family that you have older people who die and they don't talk about their own experiences of conflict. And, you know, but really that's part of the way you you unlock the emotions by... by Mm. coming out and talking about these things honestly. Okay, and I suppose part of our building on from that um, Julianne talks about the importance of investigation. That's right, and there is this frustration that I mean, and again it comes back to the sense of acknowledgement. If someone's been killed and you never really find out how or why what happened, then it feels as if you're, you're, that person's death has not been acknowledged. It feels mm. as if there's no real explanation ever given to you about why they died. It was as if they died, but the story was never written. The, the you know the, the, the acknowledgement was never given, and that's you know that is adds to the pain. Right. But apology might go some way. An apology is another thing that um, Julianne talks about. Might go some way to redress and that. Yeah, and going back to the bloody Sunday. I mean, Julianne's making the point that actually it, it transformed a lot of the emotional baggage within Derry. The fact mm. that David Cameron issued an apology. I mean, I, I personally have reservations about the extent to which an apology by David Cameron as Prime Minister at that time for actions authorised perhaps by a previous Prime Minister, Ted Heath, of actions by the Parachute Regiment. I mean, I don't quite understand uh, the value of that apology when it's not actually the people who are involved. But clearly this was transformative. Mm. So, you know, despite my personal cynicism, it clearly has been transformative for the city of Derry and it clearly is an important part of unlocking the issues around the past. Yeah, okay. 
So that's it for this episode of the podcast. Um, you can subscribe to this through your podcast app or you can catch up on this and all our episodes through hollywelltrust.com and sluggerotool.com. Uh, thanks to Julianne for taking the time to meet with Paul and to Dee Kern and Emer Dory for production support. Thanks for listening. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.